morning. Let's pray together while we begin. Heavenly Father, this has been a hot and uncomfortable week here in New Jersey. It's been a time when uh, maybe tempers have been a little shorter than normal just because we've dealt with a lot of discomfort. Been a lot of people traveling, a lot of things happening in our lives, and we just pray, Lord, that during this next few minutes you'd help us just to center our thoughts and our minds to be willing to hear what you would say to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Just give us a kind of fertile soil for you to plant your seeds in, Lord, so that you could grow and really develop us into the kind of people you want us to be. We just thank you for this powerful portion of Scripture. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Today we're looking at one of the most familiar passages in the entire Bible, Psalm 23. Most people, even if they don't practice any faith, know at least portions of Psalm 23. They've heard it, or they could even repeat some of the phrases of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, uh, uh, the valley of the shadow of death. For Christians and Jews, it's perhaps the favorite of all the psalms put together. It's thought of as a psalm of comfort that's been read a billion times in hospital rooms, at bedsides, memorial services, and funerals. Comfort. Comfortable. When most people think of Psalm 23, they think of, you know, lambs playing, uh, running through green meadows and splashing in a cool mountain stream. A keen-eyed shepherd in a crisp white robe is watching over the flock. It's the kind of psalm that gets embroidered onto pillows and made into wall hangings. It's written with flowery script on Hallmark cards. And that's the danger. Because when something from the Bible becomes that familiar, it is so easy to sanitize, to romanticize, to, to neutralize. It becomes so familiar that we're numb to what the Scripture is really trying to say. And then it loses its power to actually touch your heart or transform your life. This hit home for me recently. I was watching a movie called The Book of Eli, starring Denzel Washington in the title role. Eli is a lone wolf, nomadic wanderer in this post-apocalyptic world where civilization has been shredded and the landscape is this gray-brown dust bowl of rusted metal and broken-down buildings. It's a violent world filled with anarchy and, and death. But Eli has a mission. Supposedly, he has in his possession the very last Bible on the face of the earth. The very last remaining copy of the Bible. All other copies have been destroyed. He's got the only Bible left. And he's been instructed by this divine voice to take this Bible to a special place where we discover later that there are people there rebuilding civilization and they're just waiting for a Bible to appear. But the bad guys want the book too because they think it'll give them the power to conquer their enemies. So they're hunting Eli to get the book. And all along the way, Eli is joined by a young woman who's never even seen a book in her whole life. She doesn't know anything about the Bible at all. She doesn't understand what makes the Bible so important or why people would be willing to fight and die to possess it. So at one point, she asks Eli, read me something from the book so that I can know what it's all about. What does he choose? What passage would best summarize the message of this mysterious, powerful, sought-after book? So Eli stands, and he begins to recite Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. So surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I was amazed at this scene. I'm not recommending that you see the movie. It was pretty violent. But I was amazed at how it treated the Bible with respect, even awe. And that's something you rarely, if ever, see coming out of Hollywood. But what really hit me most was it seemed like it put Psalm 23 closer to its original context. Its original feel, that dry, dusty, semi-arid world of the ancient Middle East where your lips are always parched and you better sleep with one eye open. The psalm was written by King David in a time when he was surrounded by violence and intrigue and death. And what I hope I can get you to see this morning is that Psalm 23 isn't just so much just a psalm of comfort as it is a psalm of defiance, of defiance. Let me explain what I mean. To really understand Psalm 23, you have to get inside the skull of King David as he formed these words in his mind. It was written probably when David was an elderly man after he had been king a long time, and his life had gone through many serious ups and downs. But David knew one important thing, and that is is that life is a contact sport a full contact sport. In life, you bump into other people hard. And sometimes you get bruised and battered and even injured. And sometimes those injuries come from the people who are closest to you, even people in your own family. They're the ones who can sometimes do the most damage. But unlike in sports, in life, there's no time out, no halftime. You have to learn how to play injured. You have to keep playing despite the pain. You have to keep going even though it hurts. And so what you do with your pain is pretty important. Where you put it, how you handle it, how you deal with the bruises and even the broken bones. That's what makes the difference in life is how you handle your pain. So in writing Psalm 23, King David is kind of looking back over his life as older men will do, going back to his roots as a shepherd boy. His youth, those formative pre-adolescent years, that awkward age when you're not really a boy, but you're not yet a man. And I don't care how old you are, you always carry that boy inside the man, that young girl inside the woman. We don't ever really outgrow that young person that we used to be. And we can carry the pain of those early experiences. A few years ago, a woman in her late 70s was visiting the area from Pennsylvania, and she happened to stop in to come to worship with us. And I must have said something in my sermon that day about the pain that we can experience in families because she sought me out during the coffee hour. And the very first thing she said to me was this. She said, when I was 14, I wanted to kill my stepfather for what he tried to do to me. But my mother hid the gun. So I ran away from home and I never went back. It's hard to know where to go in a conversation after an opening line like that. In her late 70s, 
and she's still carrying the pain of her early years. Even when we're old, we carry that little boy, that little girl inside us. We never really lose that person we used to be. So go back in your mind's eye to when we first hear of David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The nation of Israel is fighting for its life, its very existence. And the king, King Saul, well, his life, his leadership was in ruins. He had disobeyed God and had been rejected as king over Israel. And so the Lord uh, uh, appointed and directed the prophet Samuel to go to Bethlehem to anoint a new king. He was to pick from one of the sons of a man named Jesse. So Jesse brings his sons to Bethlehem, parades them before Samuel like the prize heifers at the county fair. It's sort of like the auditions for American Idol. You know, who is going to be selected? First, there's Eliab. He's the eldest. He's kind of the swaggering bully. He's kind of hulking and brutish. He's used to getting his way by brute strength. He's dominated everything and everybody, but Samuel passes him by. And then there's Abinadab, kind of a snob, kind of arrogant, kind of self-possessed. Well, it's not him either. And then Shaman, well, you get the idea. After the third son, the Bible stops giving them names. But the tension is heating up. Who will Samuel choose? All seven sons pass before Samuel, and each in turn is rejected. Each one humiliated in front of the whole town. And then the show was over. And then Samuel asked Jesse, you know, are these, are these all your sons? Did God somehow give me the wrong message? And the question was kind of like a kick in the stomach to Jesse. Oh, yeah, David. <laughs> Forgot about him. But you can't want him. I mean, you can't be serious. He's the baby of the family. And that's where we begin to understand the pain in David's life. He was born when his father Jesse was quite old. It was a second marriage for both his mom and his dad. They each had a long string of children from their previous marriages. Some of them were all grown up before David was even born. And David had nieces and nephews who were older than he was. And there was a serious rift in the family between these two lines of offspring. Lots of jealousy, even hatred. And David, as the youngest product of this mixed marriage, he took the brunt of the conflict. He was literally the runt of the litter, the bottom of the food chain, the odd duck, the neglected child, most likely to be forgotten in all the family drama. He was always going to be the baby, always the kid brother, always the nuisance, the one the others resented. He was, in fact, expendable. The family didn't need him. The older brothers didn't want him. And you can imagine the bullying, the ridicule, the beatdowns he suffered from all his older brothers. And he's never really even protected by his mother. She's never even mentioned in Scripture, completely absent from the story. So David, at best, he's completely neglected. At worst, he's physically abused. So they gave him the job nobody else wanted, the job that he could do the least bit of damage and he would be out of the way, out of sight, out of mind, out in the wilderness with the sheep for long lonely periods of time. David was just this ordinary kid. There was nothing outstanding about him to the naked eye. He wasn't qualified for anything, and so he wasn't even invited to the Bethlehem party. He was just a 12 or 13-year-old, love-starved, insecure, mixed-up, cast-off kid. 
So when David wrote in Psalm 27, verse 10, Though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. You can tell he wrote that out of the pain of his own family experience. And yet God picked him. And if that wasn't enough, it turns out this kid is a genius. He's brilliant. We discover over his lifetime that David has the musical talent of a Beethoven. He has a literary skill of a Shakespeare, the hand-to-eye coordination of an A-Rod, the political wisdom of a Winston Churchill, the military genius of a General Patton. He could do it all, and he could mix all that talent together in a home where, where he lives in a home where the favorite musical instrument is the bass drum. I mean, you have to imagine a Nobel Prize-winning poet growing up in a family of lug nuts and barbarians. No one saw his potential. No one cultivated him. No one mentored him. No one gave him a chance. He was on his own from the get-go. All that wrapped up in one lonely shepherd boy, and God picked him. What does it do to a young person who is denied his or her sense of belonging, who has been pushed to the bottom of the pile? They learn to fight. They learn to fight. They either fold up in defeat or they learn to fight. And David was a fighter. doesn't matter that he can't win. He's so much smaller. All the others are bigger, older, stronger. Can you imagine him just trying to get his share of food at the dinner table? So he came out swinging, and he kept on fighting. Kick, punch, scratch, claw, bite, grab, tear, wiggle, squirm. And he learned to use his head, or he'd just be everybody else's punching bag. I believe the home David grew up in was sort of tragically loveless. And so where did he go to find any kind of love? Well, like a lot of rejected kids, they find solace in having a pet. A dog, a cat, a gerbil. A relationship with a pet can fill the emptiness that a neglected child can suffer. And so David took to his sheep. He loved his sheep. Loved them so much he would fight for them. You can imagine how he felt if a mountain lion ever got one of his sheep to see its torn body shredded and bleeding how it would have twisted his stomach into knots. He was half the size of a bear or a mountain lion. But he had learned to fight in a family full of people bigger than he was. He wasn't afraid. And plus he had his rod and his staff, and he knew how to use them. In the Middle East, every shepherd boy carries a rod and a staff. The rod is a, basically a handmade club. They take a young tree and they dig it from the ground. They carve down the, the knot where the trunk joins the root. It's shaped into a smooth, rounded head of hard wood, and the young shepherd boys spend hours throwing and practicing with their clubs. They learn how to throw it with amazing speed and accuracy. It becomes their main weapon of defense and protection for themselves and for their sheep. To drive away predators like wolves and stray dogs, the mountain lion, the bear. In every circumstance, in every situation, the shepherd fights with his rod, and that's still true today among Bedouin shepherds in the Middle East. The shepherd's staff was a long, slender stick with a curved end into a crook or a hook. And when lambs are born or a lamb wanders away from its mother, the shepherd doesn't want his scent to get on the lamb lest the ewe reject her offspring. So he uses the staff to kind of gently push the lamb towards its mother. 
The staff is also used for guiding. It's gently laid against the side of a sheep to prod it in the right direction, a a gentle pressure. And the shepherd will sometimes walk with his staff just simply touching the back of a sheep, simply as a sign of special attention, simply as a sign of reassurance that he's near so that a nervous sheep will know that they are in touch. And sheep do get into trouble. They're notorious for wandering off. It happened so often it became a problem everybody understood, and that's why Isaiah could write, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to our own way. That's Isaiah 53, 6. And so when they wandered off, they'd frequently fall down a crevice or get stuck on a steep ledge, and that's where the hook came in. The shepherd would get them around the neck or around a limb and lift them to safety. And Jesus used this image in his most famous parable of the lost sheep. Going and searching for that one sheep that has wandered away, that's God's heart. And that was David's heart too. And how was this lonely kid banished to the wilderness? How was he going to fill all his empty hours? With his genius IQ, he can't just talk to the sheep all day. He dreams. He dreams. The dreams of a homeless kid who lives outside under the stars. No roof, no bedroom of his own. And so he dreams of green pastures instead of rocky soil. He dreams of mountain streams and the home that he never had. He makes up poems and he sets them to music. He sings and he strums away on his homemade lyre. There's no one there to make fun of him, no one to tell him that his voice stinks or that his ideas are stupid, no critical comments, no one to step on his dreams. He dreams big dreams. He puts words together. He sings and somehow he connects with God in a special way. And God chose him. I want you to see this young man on a rugged hillside. Barely a teenager, trying to find his identity, trying to feel some sense of security in life, longing to be loved. If you were to sit next to him, I want you to hear yourself saying something like this, David, I can tell that you love your sheep and they're safe with you. You care for them. But what about you? Who looks after you? And you can see his young face tighten, maybe the beginnings of a tear in the corner of his eye that he quickly wipes away. And then he stands and he says sort of boldly to the world, you know, they think they can beat me down. They think I'm just a problem. They think I won't ever amount to anything. But you know what? Yahweh, he's my shepherd. The Lord looks after me. He's the one leading my life. He'll guide me to green your pastures. You just wait and see, and he'll look after me when I'm down. I'm not scared, not with God beside me. I don't care if he leads me through the most dangerous or weird experiences you can think of. He will still be with me. And if I can look after my sheep with my crook and with my club, what protection will God give me when he guards me with his weapons? I'm not afraid, not one bit. He'll keep me safe. Right now, all I get, all I get are leftovers. But you know what? Someday, someday he's going to set up a huge banquet table just for me. The table will be groaning with food. The wine flask will be spilling over. All the wine in the world just for me and my enemies, all my enemies, they'll just have to squat in the corner and they won't get one bite. And All the days of my life, God's going to follow after me. I know it'll be hard, but he'll surround me 
with his kindness and his goodness. His love will go ahead of me every day. It will wash over me like perfumed oil. There's more to me than people know, but God knows. And I'm going to do something with my life. And God, God will get me a home. And when it's all over, Yahweh, well, he's going to welcome me into his home. Because he's the father I never had. And I'll live with him forever. And wouldn't you want to say, David, write that down. Write that down for other kids, for other people who are struggling, who are disturbed, who are lonely, who are unwanted, who are misunderstood or rejected or stepped on, people who are just trying to hold it together. Write that down for people whose homes are tragic or whose lives are empty. Write that down for people who spend their days in courtrooms or in clinics or in foster care or who are alone. Write that down for people who, who wrestle with guilt or addictions. Write that down for people who are stubborn and self-willed and are trying to be self-sufficient. David, write it down for them, your words of defiance so that they don't give in and they don't give up. Write that down for everyone to read because it doesn't matter if you're mixed up or well-adjusted. It doesn't make any difference here. The only thing that matters is knowing that there's a shepherd who loves you, who wants to guide you, who wants to watch over you who wants to welcome you into his family, into his home. A boy's simple yet defiant words about his relationship with God, written down when he was an old man, but composed in his heart when he was a young boy. Written down so that they can be your words too. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. Let's pray. Lord God, if that was the only verse in the entire Bible, it would be enough. That we would see you as the one who loves us intimately, who knows us, who cares for us, who wants us, who accepts us through Christ. Help that to be the way we live, in the knowledge and the security, the wholeness, the strength, the peace of the shepherd. For we pray in your name. Amen.